Welcome to Window Gazing, the podcast where two TikTokers try to stay on the same subject. Uh, if you want to support this podcast, we have a Patreon and you will get bonus episodes um, just about monthly uh, if you would like to support us there. If not, um, you know, we're in a ha- capitalist hellscape and I know that everybody is having a hard time. So um, today we wanted to talk about um, story and how people have a tendency to create stories uh, in their lives and for the the world um, that don't necessarily exist and um, why we tend to project story onto things and maybe some ways that it's useful and not useful. Um, So I don't know, story shows up in my life in a problematic way in relationships usually. I find myself trying to project stories sometimes onto people, like to box people in so that I can understand who this person is better. Um, And then it's just sometimes the way that people interact with me, telling stories about what their motivations are, what they may be doing. And it's ultimately, I I asked myself, I stood back and asked, like, why do I create stories? And I was like, oh, I'm just trying to feel safe. I'm just trying to figure out how to interact with the world. And it's really easy if I can create some defined shape for everything to understand what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Like, I think, you know, it's a tricky thing because, uh, so my wife, so maybe we should go back because this whole idea for a podcast started because of a TikTok that I did where I was very obliquely talking about the, you know, Israel-Palestine conflict. And I was talking about the fact that I think there's a lot of people for whom they require a clear narrative where there's like a hero and a villain, right? Um, and maybe that hero and villain keeps switching. Um, like there's there's some people who cannot figure out what moral decision they have to make in order to like see which side they would support unless they are fully aware that one side is perfectly innocent and the other side is perfectly guilty and whatever that means as far as the story they're telling and I think so my wife saw that TikTok and she took an issue I think with my dismissal of story as an important thing and actually I should have offered a a bit more clarity on that like I don't think stories are inherently bad I just think that they if we don't realize that almost everything we do to interpret this insanely chaotic world is in some way a story we tell, which is like the sort of foundation of all, I would say like postmodern philosophy, for example, right? Like Foucault is all about, you know, the sort of narratives that we create. If we don't acknowledge that we can run into these problems. So I think I just want to like clarify off the bat that I don't think stories of themselves in and of themselves are bad things. I just think that if we don't acknowledge our desire to turn things into stories to understand them and the consequences that that can have, then we can get into serious trouble. So that's my little lead off on that, my little caveat. I think part of the problem is like people like you and me know that we are doing that. Most people don't know that they are even doing it, which is the problem. Um, so maybe the solution overall is just like more self-awareness. Um, but I actually wanted to talk about, um, oh, first of all, I'm looking at my little outline, my little secret outline. Um, 
where's the place that story shows up in your life that is like most problematic or like where do you see yourself doing this that it hurts you Oh man. Well, I mean, this is where, this is probably where I'm like classic talk therapy 101, right? So this is, so the idea of telling stories is like a huge thing, obviously in, in like things like cognitive behavioral therapy, because the whole premise of that idea is that we, human beings are extremely good at catastrophizing. And the way we catastrophize is we will take little nuggets of information that in and of themselves may not mean anything and we construe a story out of those things. Um, and usually our brains do it in a way that uh, almost always is like not in our favor. You know what I mean? So, you know, the classic example is if I get a, if I get a, you know, a random meeting invite with no agenda and it's just me and my boss or something like that. And it's like on a random time on a Friday afternoon, my brain will immediately go into overdrive taking every little snippet of information and interaction I may have had with that person over the last week or two weeks or whatever, and all the projects we're going through and all this stuff. And it will just create these like uh, very ornate, you know, frightening narratives of what's going to happen. And then, and then it's like, it keeps going. And then it starts thinking, well, what were the consequences of this being? What does this mean for my future? And that sort of thing. And it's like, it's not even a voluntary process, right? It's just like, it just goes, you know? And I think, I think this is like somewhat of a universal experience. And I think one of the great boons of therapy for people who haven't engaged in it is that it at least gives you tools to sort of just be aware that that's what's happening. But in my experience, just being aware of that is happening doesn't really help. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I would, say, I would say personally, that's obviously where story is most problematic in my life. Um, so you because, think, well, go ahead. You think even though you can see yourself saying, I have no evidence that I'm about to get fired. I have no evidence that I'm about to get written up, even though I'm having an important conversation with someone on a Friday. Um, do you think that that doesn't allow you to um, take non-action? Because I would say the thing that helps me most about knowing that a story is taking place is like, okay, I have created a narrative which has ultimately made me very anxious. However, I know that that narrative is not necessarily true. And so I'm not going to act on any of these stories that I think are happening. Um, and that's absolutely the thing that's saved me in relationships too. Like when insecurity is coming up and I'm projecting things onto people that make me feel better about me um, because I think that I'm being rejected. Um, and, uh, and then there's a whole other layer there that's like the unconscious like wants to feel rejected because of childhood trauma, whole thing. Um, there's like layers of stories happening. Um, I, when I can see those layers of stories, I can go, we don't actually know because this is being created without my, my conscious consent. Yeah. I mean, I think we're in a generation where it's a lot easier for people to concoct these narratives because a lot of the time you're, in, you're interacting over like a dead, dead media or you're just seeing like texts, for example. And it, it's right. like, uh, human beings like we're incredibly good and this is part of like and this actually hints at the magic of the written word in general and certainly of written fiction is that we are extremely good at reading into literally reading into a very small bit bits of information stuff that might not even entirely be there and there's like there's something like universally dreadful about those three dots of the person writing and when they disappear mm -hmm. and then they come oh. You know, you know what I mean? Dots. And it's just churning. And I, so, I, you know, 
as much as I'm like, I'm, I think it's kind of amusing that, that there's so much dating discourse and there's so much like, uh, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus bullshit on TikTok at the moment. Like it, so it's totally understandable because there's something about communication now that's very much a cold war, you know, whereas like anytime I've had the experience where I've physically been in contact with somebody, I'm in the same room and we're having a conversation you know, that, that can still happen, right? Like you can still walk away from that conversation and think that you read cues into how they're feeling and, and not being able to read them. But like, it's a lot more difficult, you know, than, than when you're just dealing with someone over text or even over the phone, you know? Um, so yeah, I think, uh, I think in terms of relationships now, it's like a huge pitfall and you can see this, like, you know, and I think, I think one of the issues I have with TikTok in, in general is like one of the things that people love about the app is it 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 gives people stories that empower them that are still stories, you know what I mean? They're still kind of bullshit stories. So like this idea of, you know, um, I'm trying to think of a good, good, good example in the discourse, but like, you know, this idea that uh, I don't know, men are totally useless or that they're, uh, they're all inherently liars. And if they do X, Y, Z, it a hundred percent, percent means that they are thinking this um and then it's obviously on the opposite spectrum men sort of doing the same things and it's just these are stories that are feel empowering but in the same way that like if you eat a chocolate bar you feel full for a few minutes before like your system collapses and so i think this is like as i sort of go more (laughs) more this is my biggest issue is that i think as opposed to like trying to accept the sort of unknowableness and like the limits of our knowledge about each other and relationships and the fact that that's just like part and parcel with being a human being it's like we we just like we keep grazing for a narrative that we think is going to give us the most sense of power you know what I mean does that make sense it's a little abstract what I'm saying no I I love what you said about the dead media aspect of it I thought when you said dead media you meant like media that you can't engage with and then I realized you meant media like I like tv or something and then I realized you meant media like there is no human face that you're looking at you're looking at text and so much nuance can be lost and that's where I've received the most frustration in relationships is like when somebody's being kind of cagey or not not responding enough to me and like I don't know if they are busy or if like and I'm starting to get anxious and like I need that response from them um and if I could just know that they weren't available, um, I would feel so much better, but I have the illusion that they're always available um, because of the phone. Um, and it's introduced so many problems that didn't used to exist anymore. Um, but I think you were starting to hit on something that I love, which is um, we have lost the ability, or maybe we never had it, to hold nuance, to hold mm-hmm two truths in the room at the same time. And um, I've had a situation recently where it really was calling me to hold two truths in the room at the same time. And I kept wanting to flip back and forth to one. I was like, does it mean this or does it mean that? And my friend was like, I think that it means both. And I think that Mm -hmm. this situation is calling you to be able to hold that. And I'm like, but that's so difficult. I just want to spring into um, all of the um, like backup belief systems that I have for this. Um, And that brings me into what I wanted to read 
um, is the list of cognitive biases from um, CBT therapy. So I will now read them if you don't have anything to add before I read. <laughs> no, I, I, I think I, I, I remember all of these from reading, you know, D uh, David Burns book, Feeling Good. So I'm sure I, it's, this is familiar territory okay. for me. Yes, this is one of the first things they brought to me in cognitive behavioral therapy because um, I do all of them. I struggle with this a lot, I'm big black and white thinker. So, okay, there are 17. Um, these are the things that we introduce into our thinking to help create story or to help create safety or stability for ourselves when we don't have enough information. Um, all or nothing thinking, right or wrong, black or white, good or bad, absolute or extreme categories. Um, magnification, overstating mm -hmm. or understating a problem, an unfair comparison, blowing things out of proportion, or shrinking their importance. Yeah. Overgeneralization. Uh, Sorry, what? yeah, go on. That's a huge one, magnification for me. It's funny, I know exactly where that comes up, but... I magnify usually the negative. Um, and I think that, that that's later on the list. So maybe it's kind of the same thing, but I usually want to believe that everything's going to go badly so that I can prepare to the nth degree. Yep. Um, Overgeneralization, thinking always or never, conclusions based on one piece of negative evidence, global assumptions, assuming the worst or never ending patterns of defeat. Discounting the positive. Positives mm. don't matter. Only accepting negative information. Yeah. Um, negative mental fil filter. Only seeing the negative. So that's pretty much the same thing. Filter out positives. Uh, labeling. Un uh, unkind names of self or others. Assigning judgment or exagger exaggerated opinions. So putting people in boxes. Blame or self-blame, um, blaming self or others, playing the victim, holding others responsible. Um, blame is external or blame is only internal. So trying to figure out where to place the blame in the situation. Um, heaven's reward fallacy, what's this one? Expecting something, then feeling resentment when you don't get it. Mm. Yeah, so that's a, yeah. yeah, putting expectations on the outside world. That happens in dating a lot. Um, the entire religion's built around circumventing that that uh, bias. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, hopelessness, feeling like your problem will never be solved. No one is ever going to love me. What's the use? Why bother trying? Emotional reasoning. I feel it. Therefore, it is true. Emotions accepted as facts. Incorrect assumptions based on what you're feeling at the moment. Um. Should statements, heavy, uh, heavy demands, criticism of self or others or expectations includes should, shouldn't, must, ought to, or have to. Um, so uh, this one would show up a lot for me in like, well, I should be productive right now. So I, I intrinsically feel um, like a stressor. And that also um, would create like shame slash blame like spirals for me um, because I would be like, well, I should have done this differently. Um, and that's a, that's also a form of narrative. Um, fallacy or fairness, life should be fair, just and equal, um, or seeing things as, as inherently unfair or fair. Um, mind reading, knowing what others are thinking, judgments, conclusions without evidence, reading into others' thoughts, and then creating more stories on top of those assumptions. Um, 
fortune telling, making conclusions or predictions without evidence. What if statements, catastrophizing, predicting with certainty. Notice all these are just trying to create safety and security and structure in a world that doesn't have that. Um, mm -hmm. Always being right, internalizing opinions and will put others on trial to prove their opinions or actions are correct. Needing to be right. Um, fallacy of change, expecting other people to change to suit you, pressuring others to change. Happiness is dependent on other people's behavior. Yep. Uh, and the last one, control fallacies. Internal, has control over self, others, and surroundings, feels responsible. External, life is controlled by other factors, feelings of, of having no control. So that one is a huge one for me. I always try to have an internal control of everything. So I'm the person that's always going to feel responsible for what other people do. Um, and I'm going to immediately look at myself in every situation and figure out how I can react in my own behavior so that I can ultimately control the situation, which never works. Um, yeah. So I'm a more like internally like self-reflective person, take responsibility for things so that I have control. Um, yeah. yeah. So what's interesting about all of those things is that, you know, they might seem like they're harsh on yourself because they're assuming that people think the worst of you or that you're always going to have the, the worst outcome. But it's actually, I mean, this, these, the parts therapy would lean into this. It's actually kind of a way to protect yourself in this, in this perverse way, because, um, you know, the whole idea of like projecting these negative stories about like outcomes on our behalf is like to prepare yourself, uh, you know, in some weird way for expecting that to happen. And so it won't be a surprise. You won't be a shock. And there's this like, there is this like almost OCD sense in a lot of people with anxiety. And I suffer from this as well, that like, if you allow yourself to accept, not even predict, but like accept the possibility of a positive outcome, you're somehow cursing yourself to disappointment. You know what I mean? Yes. And so even, even when like 90% of the time, your worst judgments about the outcome are unfounded, they turn out to be unfounded. It, you still have to go through the process because it's a way of like sort of almost consecrating yourself at, for the possibility of like, of like a really negative outcome from those things. And that's also feeding to the idea that's also a story and a myth that you cannot handle a negative, a negative outcome in any of these situations that you would just, you know, it will be the worst thing in the world that you will never overcome it, that there's no future, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. The, that relates so much to me um, of, so the, I'm going to try to like explain this. I don't know if I'll be able to um, not not expecting joy so that the pain doesn't bother you when you don't get the job or when the thing doesn't happen, not um, being excited about something. Um, what happens is like, if it doesn't happen, you're no less deflated, like you're still upset. And if it does happen, you've actually ruined your happiness a little bit. Like you tend to just be like, oh, well, I didn't like ride that wave of excitement. Like I didn't get to have my excitement. So you actually just rob yourself of the positive experience. And we do this yeah. in relationships. Um, we, so you'll, you'll have a type of person that won't ever try to make any connection so that they couldn't possibly lose anybody. And what they do at the end of the day is they end up just completely robbing themselves of any positive connection that they could have. 
and um, because they don't think that they can weather the negative. But the truth is like, we just have to learn how to weather all ups and downs. And like, that's the ultimate, I think, lesson of everything. And, um, but I think it's healthy to, to try not to have expectations, but to absolutely have like excitement about things. And that's one of the things I miss about being a kid and not being, so, not being such a jaded adult, just like, being excited. You talk about being excited about the summer and like, oh man, we've got all summer. Um, and like, we don't get to have that feeling as adults anymore. And part of it is like, if I had all summer, I'd be like, I wonder how my anxiety is going to show up on day three when I still have 30, you know, 60 more days of figuring out what to do with myself. Um, and like, I feel so much more jaded by life where I'm just like projecting negatives a lot of the time where I really don't need to. Um, and I don't know, in a lot of like my, but probably where I'm at right now is just like trying to enjoy the moment the most. Um, Cause I have this whole thing about like trying, um, trying to get to happiness somehow or like build to happiness. And I'm like, oh wait, my capacity for happiness is built in the moment. Like I'm never going to have a higher capacity for happiness. So I'm more trying to build my sensitivity to happiness so that I can actually feel how much happiness is there. Um, I used to think about like, if I had like a lot more money, if somebody gave me a lot more money, would I even be able to feel it? Like how much that money is? Like, would I be able to feel the level of um enjoyment that that could give me so i think about that like yeah. enjoying the maximum well uh so so building on that idea and this actually goes back to what i said at the beginning so the idea is not necessarily that stories per se are bad it's just like being aware of the kinds of stories that we tell each other um so counter to the, the cognitive biases you listed out you know i think this is a lot of the magic of real gratitude practice um which is not necessarily just like being like, you should be thankful, which is again, a should statement. It's more just, it's actually, it's it's a form of storytelling. And the story it, you tell yourself is what if, it's a what if story. So what if I did not have these things? What if I have mm. no illness? What if I did not have the house that I have right now? Or I didn't, my, what if my kids were sick or dead? You know what I mean? Or, or something horrible like that. Um, and it sounds macabre and horrible, but you know, um, just that kind of gratitude practice uh, creates where there was not any excitement before a sense of excitement and appreciation for just the normalcy of what's in front of you right now. You know what I mean? And so again, it's just, it's not that it's, it's not again, that the stories are bad. It's just that the kinds of stories that we tell ourselves in certain contexts can have different effects that, you know, to sort of take a judgment neutral uh, approach to it. Um, Everybody. So yeah, I mean, well, go ahead. Everybody is just trying to promote a sense of being okay and hopefully being happy and feeling positive and prolong that feeling as long as possible mm -hmm. and avoid pain. And um, yeah. and I think that that's ultimately why these stories are created. Um, I think like on a world scale, people don't know that they're doing it. I don't know. 
I'm really curious because you're way more in politics and more in the news than I am. Um, I hear you talking about politics and I'm like, I don't care about this. Um, <laughs> boring. <laughs> but, yeah, this is boring. Um, people are very up in arms. But with the the conflict, because that's what this came up about is like Israel and Palestine and like people taking sides. And we're both just like, why does why do some people have to be the heroes and some people have to be the villains and like this is stupid. Um, and my view on it has just been like, it's the only thing I'll say about it. It's just like, this has been happening. These people have been fighting and they will be fighting. And it just happens to be a little bit more in the news right now. And like, hey, there ain't nothing I can do. People, people are going to fight. Like, I feel like it is anytime people are fighting, like th these issues are not going to be um, sussed out by fighting they're going to be sussed out by talking and you have to wait until these people have destroyed themselves enough to get to a bottom <laughs> where they're willing to talk um, and I'm like I'm not going to get them there I don't think anything's going to stop them so that's yeah. all I have to say about that well all I'll say about it is I mean my own view so the reason I did that TikTok is because I think there's this sense that we can only support, for example, we can only support the Palestinians. And this, you see this when they, when news anchors interview Palestinian representatives. And the first thing they ask them is, do you condemn the actions of Hamas? Right. And so there's this, it speaks to this idea that we can only, we can only accept like moral support of a particular side in a conflict uh, if we deem them to be pure in the ways that we sort of judge as being correct yeah. you know what i mean are they villains <laughs> enough are the other guys heroes enough yeah. yeah and it's the same people who are like oh you support palestine well then you don't want israel to exist or israelis to exist i'm like i don't want like you know what i mean that's not what i'm talking about like i'm i'm literally just in a situation where it's like it's very clear and obvious to me that like there's a side here that has a tremendous amount of power and a side that really has no power whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And um, when those two opposing poles are presented as like two equal um, and opposed like, like um, opposites, it's like, that is this, that's, that's a false narrative. It's a narrative. I'm not saying like I'm creating any less of a narrative, like certainly the idea of looking at like power as a fundamental dynamic in human relationships that is also a story in and of itself and that there's also an element of reduction there um so i'm not i'm not saying like i'm superior to that i just think that um there's an i think if we don't check ourselves when especially when we're trying to analyze you know um situations that involve vast human populations you know you're talking like millions of people um this idea of trying to reduce things to a hero villain narrative and it happens all the time everyone does it it's like you can read any op-ed and it will it will say the same thing you know like um it's like it's, a really good example is the sort of u.s narrative on iran and you know a lot of lazy americans or canadians for that example might accept government you know um uh, i guess ideology on on iran at face value and assume that all iranians are bloodthirsty and want to like kill all americans when it's back like iran's a very well educated normal country and like persians are among the most like you know uh active involved interesting like they're in, they're engaged in in science and like they're just like it's like iran is just another country like the, the us or canada um and so like this idea where we try again we try to read into the, these almost almost caricatured 
narratives of like an evil evil empire right like to borrow reagan's phrase versus like the saintly america who cares about freedom or whatever you're just gonna you're gonna run into so many different problems there so so oh, yeah, yeah i think that's what i was after yeah and i think what we're seeing in the news is just like story is powerful um that's why it is used as a weapon it has power um to convince people uh and more and more i feel like our news is just all a story anyway um maybe it always has been i think i stand back and i'm like was it better in the 50s and 60s i think it was different um there's a lot of opinion now um what's the other thing i was gonna say i'm curious like there's definitely like a little guy big guy narrative and i think that um emotionally humans always want to help the little guy um they always want to help out whoever it has less power in order to even out the score no matter um what everybody is doing that's why um like when you know our own uh terrorism war in the 2000s uh, was happening they had to blow up the idea of al-qaeda and the taliban as being this big organization because otherwise they would have looked like the little guy um and like we were bullying a little guy uh and so i think that that plays into this here a little bit that there's a narrative around helping the little guy helping the person who doesn't have any power um I want to like do a hard transition here. I don't know how. Do you have anything else to say about that? I do. I just like, I want to point this out. I'm really glad you mentioned that because like, um, so I'm old enough to remember that like there was a moment, um, uh, I want to say it's not post 9-11, but, but actually post Iraq war where um, John Kerry uh, in the 2004 election ran against George, uh, George W. Bush. And um Kerry got into a lot of trouble because he he said like if we had treated uh, acts of terrorism as a criminal um, as a criminal endeavor, so just like, like involve Interpol, like work with worldwide police forces to identify extremist groups and arrest them, much the way that the FBI operates in the United States, for example, um, it, it would be a much more effective and less like costly and deadly mode of countering terrorism and he was like lambasted as some sort of like soft out of touch but he was right you know what i mean like the the irony of what the u.s did after 9-11 they went to war with afghanistan and like the taliban didn't even do it they just harbored you know uh the the mastermind of of the the people who did 9-11 or whatever and so like again the u.s told itself this story that this is a global clash of civilizations and that, um, and, it, and it was like, it was really weird to me in some ways that after 9-11, all the screaming headlines were about America at war or war in America. And it's like, this isn't a war, this is an act of terror. Like they are two separate things. Like a conventional war between armies is entirely different than someone hijacking a plane and blowing it up, right? Like it's devastating and awful, but it's not the same thing as a conventional, you know, conventional act of war. But because everyone bought into the war rhetoric immediately, there was this like pressure that America had to go to war with the country and so did and ended up being like stuck in Afghanistan for 18 years when all it would have taken was like some, you know, pretty in intelligent use of international police forces and they probably could have just found Bin Laden, which they inevitably did anyways. And, you know, so yeah. I'm just saying like, 
that's like a really good example of like a story that we told ourselves about a particular event and had huge real world um, implications for how we understood and comprehended that event. And had we told ourselves a more rational story about what happened, accepting how devastating and terrible it was, but not using it as a way to like blow everything to the point where we made the world tremendously worse, which we did, um, we would have had a tremendously different outcome. Anyway, I just wanted to yeah. build on that point. Yeah, I have seen so many. Um, I have probably seen 24 hours of documentary like exposition and analysis on this whole thing through various filmmakers and just realizing how wrong we got all that and trying to understand what the story is serving. We always want to say, oh, ultimately the story is serving the power and the elites um, to control the public narrative. Um, I don't know. I think we'll be a healthier society when we have um, at least a leader or two who can come out and say like, hey, can we recognize that we're telling a story about this and that we don't have all the information? Like who's the person that's gonna say that? Um, People don't like that. I don't know if people are ready for it. Do I want to say like most people are not ready to hear or they maybe they don't have the complexity to hear that they're telling a story about something that people are coming around slowly. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say about story is that um, story is a human technology and it's something that makes us really powerful. It's one of the things that helps us preserve culture. Um, not that we can just tell something logical. Um, most of our um, our cultural aspects are way more emotional than they are logical. Um, and I read this book called The Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, um, written by an evolutionary biologist. Did you read that? No, no, I just okay. think, I think the name is funny. Yeah, it's really good um, by a couple of evolutionary biologists. And one of the things that they said is like the reason that humans have culture is because it is life preserving. It is um, handed down from generations the same as genes are. Um, and it helps people to survive in a way. Um, so the next time you put on a Christmas sweater and you're just wrapping the tree, you're just like, this is, this is culture. Um, yeah. And so funny that we've preserved so many things that used to be religious that are not anymore. And we still do them for the ceremony of them. Um, and, but uh, story is technology and you can have um, stories that are one word long, such as uh, money such as capitalism um, and- That's a big story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and we change the stories over time and we have a lot of information contained uh, in those words and they ultimately have a lot of power. Um, and so it would be better for us to understand how we are wielding that power and it seems to me that we're we're trying to swing story around in order to make ourselves feel safe. So why can't we um, find other ways to make ourselves feel safe and use story for things that it's more helpful for? 
So I agree to an extent, and I'm loath to give, I mean, because I'm always slightly skeptical of evolutionary biologists, because it's, I mean, talk about a story, like, uh, Mm. there's so much speculation that goes into that field. And there's a lot of uh, social determinism that comes out of evolutionary biology that I can find dangerous, right? Like, you can weaponize. I think we got got alpha males from from those guys, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. So I... As much as I'm loath to say that, I do think there is something to the idea. So you talked about culture as like a life-saving enterprise. And um, I totally agree. And one of the things um, that that I think about in this context, I think my wife's coming through the door here, um, is, uh, is the fact that as much as we talk about, we just need to change the stories that we tell. A lot of the stories, um, are negative i think because they are life-saving right like it's a redundancy thing so like we tell her like if you so again this like prototypical hunter gatherer or whatever out in a in a in you know a, a rural environment or whatever and they you know they see something they think is a snake and then they panic because they think it's a snake um and they act defensively there is like an argument you could make that that is life-saving behavior because even if it wasn't even if it's like mm-hmm. something as ridiculous as a stick uh, or whatever, it's it's better for us to have that redundancy built in. And so I do think there is some truth to that. There is some truth to the idea that it's not it's not an accident that the stories that we tell ourselves about everything are inherently negative, or the fact that we're attracted to, you know, watching endless tick, negative TikToks about the state of the world and mm-hmm. and the state of everything. And and I think there is the sense that we're there, we're a little hardwired that way. And again, this is why. And you know, I call it, it's like the lizard brain thing, right? The amygdala is like the sort of the oldest center of, of, of the central nervous system. And I think as much as I respect cognitive behavioral therapy, and I think it does work to recognize those stories, it doesn't take away from the fact that to me, the involuntary negativeness is something I can't really control about the stories that I tell. And even if I know consciously, it helps a little bit. It does not get rid of that overwhelming sense that I'm taking small bits of information and assuming the worst about them. You know what I mean? And so this is the thing. And, um, and you're talking about like the quality of political leaders. I think there's a reason why it's really important for political readers, uh, leaders to have good oratory skills, because uh, part of what their job is to do is to tell story, different stories, to tell a convincing story as a way to motivate us to move into a direction we might not otherwise have considered or want to move in, right? And I think more and more, there's fewer politicians who are able to do that. And it's a lot easier if you're one of those politicians to spin a yarn that you know is going to speak to the worst instincts of human beings, their worst fears, their worst assumptions, and just move into that as opposed to push against it. So I just wanted to mention that quickly. Yeah, I had a huge inspiration to um, take us into a a sidebar uh, while you were saying that. It felt so interesting. So um, I hope that I can find it again. But just when you were talking about leaders, uh, I was thinking about um, some of my favorite leaders that we've had. They are good at inspiring unity and inspiring love and um, togetherness. and more and more, I feel like our leaders are trying to inspire derision and um, uh, have us be a part of a certain sect. And um, instead of seeing us as like one unified group, seeing ourselves as like, we are going to strengthen our group within 
the country, which is the only people who are important or the people who are part of our political party, et cetera. This is like a, just a huge like sidebar theory of mine, um, but I think all the time about like the things that were selected for before we were in these constructed environments and like we were already safe and et cetera. Like obviously most of us are neurotic and anxious and full of fear. Um, and that's because that like kept us alive for a long, long time. And um, people like me, I'm constantly checking my phone. That would be really good um, if I was like checking for wolves, I suppose. Um, so uh, I think about that, like just all of us neurotic in our houses waiting for wolves that are never going to come. Um, and I wonder if over time that neuroticism is going to be like selected out of people. Um, and like just thinking the same thing. I was just yeah. going to say the same because so I, I think about wait, 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 I'm going to lose it again. Um, I think about like all the things that are not being selected for anymore. One of the main ones I think about is like our ability to birth a human head. So like women getting cesarean sections and like usually women would die in childbirth who actually didn't have hips wide enough to give birth. And so I think about all the time, like if we have to return to the wilderness is like, are we going to be able to birth our own children anymore? Uh, if we keep going on like this, are people going to be able to see, are we just like going to have a bunch of people who need glasses and can't do like, and you could do like that with all kinds of things. We're selecting for people whose metabolisms are faster. So like most people struggle with obesity because it used to be like really advantageous. So um, are we going to return to the wilderness and like not be able to survive? Um, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, like, uh, that could be actually the basis of a more positive story about the future of, uh, of you know, humanity or whatever. And that in some ways you could argue as much as we're all still stuck with our lizard brains now, maybe we have a responsibility because of the good things that we built for ourselves, like medicines and abundant food and all these things, that maybe we have a responsibility to work to push back against our worst instincts Um uh, and our worst fears because we're sort of laying the groundwork for a shift in how we understand the world in the future, right? Mm. Um, and so maybe our responsibility is to is to really push back against those narratives because um, maybe it doesn't have to be that way. Maybe this idea that we need to live in abject fear as a as a mode of survival is may not be may no longer be true for future iterations of the human species right uh, i realize this is sounding very pollyanna but i just feel yeah. like it's, it's actually worse in some ways if we are still out in the world with our lizard brains thinking everyone is trying to kill us and then we have the technology that could potentially ameliorate those issues to the point where we are living almost like a relative human utopia yes and we I still push for the idea of like fear and distrust and misunderstanding. Um, so not to sound very Star Trek, but I just feel like, you know, there is actually something positive to say, you know what, it doesn't have to be this way. We have evolved. We're no longer in the constant mortal danger that we we're in. And it seems like ridiculous in a way that all the things that we built to create like a better human society, um, not only are we hoarding that to a small percentage of people in the global North, but uh, we're also doing it in a way that like still recreates this constant sense of insecurity through the- Yes, the fact that, like, it recreates the insecurity. It's so happening. fucking stupid. We're so safe. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so again, that's why I think shows like 
you know, Star Trek are really important because they at least point to the possibility of a human future where humans just collectively decided, all right, we are safe. We created technologies that benefit people. We use them to benefit the most people. The sky didn't fall. Climate didn't like run into disasters. And even if those things did happen, we have the know-how, the expertise, the wherewithal, the courage, the humanity, the compassion to like address those things. And, you know, I think, again, it comes back to what I said earlier about my own anxiety that I feel like sometimes if I don't accept or don't contemplate the worst possible outcome in any given situation, um, then all, all hell will break loose. And I think we're at this kind of moment in our collective humanity that we can't let ourselves do good things or have a good society in part because we don't want to let go of this fear mm -hmm. that if we don't embrace the worst instincts and and don't live in this culture of fear and and insecurity that that you know that we won't be able to cope you know anyway yeah and i mean living steeped in this stew of anxiety and fear will constantly reinforce it in you even if you're yeah. trying not to practice that and that goes back to like the individual healing where we talk about how um, useless it is because of the systems and the um, greater influences that we live in in our collective influence you know it's, it just reminds me of like when you somebody's struggling with drugs and you send them to rehab and then you drop them right back in the house that they were in with all the same influences and expect them to have different coping skills. It doesn't happen. Um, it just doesn't happen. So, um, and I think there's a, there's something uh, to be said for just like, Oh, we've already created this edifice and we can't steer back now. Um, I was talking to someone who has a lot of like physical reality, um, like awareness that I don't have. They've like been a woodworker their whole life. And um, they were like, you know, they should have built Portland just like 35 degrees more turned to the West. And I was like, <laughs> why? And he was like, because at certain times of the year, you cannot prevent yourself from driving directly into the sun. And I said, oh, yeah, that would have been smarter for them to like angle it a little bit. And I said, well, when I built all this, were there cars? And was there like 5 p.m. traffic? And he was like, no, I mean, everybody was on horses. And I was like, well, there you go. Like nobody was driving into the sun. They were doing their horse thing. And so just like so many structures that we've already built are not about um, what's currently going on and like we've just built other shit on top of the shit that was already there and like we need to steer it a different way and it takes yeah, a lot it's uh it's true it's like it's like steering you know the classic metaphor of steering a ship you know it's it's, it's not going to turn right away it takes time yeah and um, we are not intentionally just, doing anything we're not even intentionally trying to solve the climate crisis i feel on any kind of scale yeah yeah yeah, it's 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 uh it's one of those things that it's incredibly difficult. And actually, this is what I wanted to mention quickly. So you mentioned uh, about the the person on drugs being put right back into the same environment, and it got me thinking. Part of what I was thinking when I did that original TikTok too was like the justice system uh, is also built on a lot of really negative stories about people. And so the idea is that um, uh, committing a horrible crime necessitates literally ending one's functionally ending one's life by putting them in prison for for the rest of time 
and that this is some sort of just punishment that is going to satisfy some some need for that sort of societal vengeance on that person. And that itself is like a crazy story because it ultimately uh, unquestioningly reduces a person to a single act in their entire lifespan, as heinous as that act might be. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be a Pollyanna and say there should be no, you know, uh, uh, like no sense of justice in those situations. But like there are like this the story that again that we sort of sort of swallowed whole without questioning about the nature of humanity, the nature of redemption, the nature of like why people commit crimes. Um, there's a number of stories we tell about it, and one is like a useful story that's based on more empirical evidence about certain people growing up in certain environments where they don't have security. They're they're products of trauma and abuse, and they end up in situations they wouldn't have otherwise ended up in, and made really really bad choices that have harmed other people to the point of ultimate, you know, terrible, terrible things. Um, but the idea that that person's life should functionally be over yeah. after that is, is, a, is a result of a very simplistic and very negative story we tell about, about the nature of humanity, right? So again, this is this, we sort of think we're above all this, like we don't do this. We sort of think we're, we're such enlightened species, but there's so many aspects of how we run society that as you say, you know, we inherited literally from the middle ages, right? <laughs> you know, so then we haven't, we still haven't really struggled to question those narratives enough. So I do think as much as I think that we're hardwired to be negative and to tell negative stories, there is this almost moral responsibility. We have to push back against those things um, at risk of like making, making life a lot worse. Yeah. It's interesting. I think that we think that we won't be safe if we don't tell a negative story and so a lot of the negative things that are playing in the background are based on bad information um, but we have some low level sense that they're keeping us safer um i feel that at night like when i'm walking around and i can't quite see who's out there um but if somebody looks a little shady if they're wearing something that looks a little bit more shady i feel less safe and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the brain is trying to pull at any narratives that I may have heard in the past about unsafe people uh, and try to project them onto the situation that I'm in to keep me safe. Um, it's funny during this trip because I'm in uh, Virginia for Sarah's wedding, uh, my best friend. And um, I noticed a number of places where I just was kind of calm and not too worried about the situation where I didn't take care of something that I probably should have taken care of. Um, one of them was just like, I didn't realize that my flight was, um, you know, like a six hour flight and I didn't ha bring any food with me onto the plane. And I was just like, normally I would have been anxious enough to plan this. So sometimes um, anxiety can like kind of play a, a role as like a parent for you. Like there are places where anxiety is really helpful um and then the other thing was like I just got off the plane and immediately started eating I was just eating a salad and I was just sitting there with Starbucks and like chilling and then I was like oh shit I should go to baggage claim because I had a bag and I was like oh my baggage claim thing is way over by now it's like an hour later where's my luggage and I was just walking around <laughs> I was like I don't have anxiety about this and I really should and they had it they were like yeah. where were you and I was like, oh, I was just uh, eating. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, this is no, it's true. It's true. Yeah, I was like, this is so good for me. Like, thank 
I'm so proud of myself for not having been anxious enough to take care of any of this stuff because it's a sign that like I'm I'm doing better you know <laughs> yeah it's, it's interesting because you know in some ways it's it's very similar to pain right and there's this classic yeah. thing of like people who are unable to feel pain are actually at much higher risk yes. of mortal injury because they don't have that feedback to help keep them safe and obviously anxiety is like similar it's right like it, yeah it, you will be inherently safer if you're alone on a street and someone's walking towards you and you decide to walk to where yes. there's other people or you're, you know, you're more in light like that. Like, I think that we have to draw the line between saying like doing something like that doesn't mean that you are dominated by a negative view of the world. And that's your whole narrative. Like there's, it's very, like I take precautions when I'm out in public. If I'm in a place where I don't know where I am, I don't know anybody. There's nobody on the street. I, will feel nervous enough to feel that I need to get out of there quickly. Um, but I also don't have this view that like inner cities or like cities in general, like these hellscapes of where, where you're. And so I'm saying that like, there's a difference between people who are, who recognize situations in which it's good to be anxious. It's good to be nervous. It's good to have a sense of fear and awareness, but that those fears don't become the basis for an absolute truth about how the world is. Right. You know what I mean? And I think that human beings are fulsome enough and we, our consciousness is wide enough and you know, embracing enough that we can do that. And um, so I think it's important to draw that distinction because as you say, like having no anxiety will, it could lead to a situation where like, oh, I lost my job. I don't care. Something else will come up or like, you know, I don't have food. I'll, I'll figure it out later. You know what I mean? And uh, I don't think that's really helpful for you either. You know, I have one thing that I was going to say just a bit ago. I know that we're um, getting tired here, but um there are, cause you were talking about the tendency to not, not allow redemption for people. And there are just facets of our culture that we've done really well, introducing good amounts of nuance. And we're having a, a conversation about the nuance in those, um, you know, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, we were like, well, uh, people of other races not must not be as smart because clearly they don't have as much money. They're not doing as well as everybody else. So clearly they're just not as, they're not as good at this. Um, and now we've introduced yeah. all the nuance where we're like, no, no, it's actually structural. And actually that belief creates that structure again. And like, we're, we're like copacetic with that. Um, we've done it with drug addiction and we have a lot of compassion for that now and understand it as structural. Um, other things, we got a lot, long way to go with them. Uh, redemption is one of those. Um, I don't understand how obtuse people are with um, like understanding that people can change. Um, I really like the comedian Louis C.K. Uh, maybe I'll get canceled for saying this. I always loved him. I loved him before he was canceled and I still love him. And um, I said the other day that he was one of my favorite comics and he still does comedy. He hasn't come to Portland, obviously, because I'm sure he'll get yelled off stage. But um, uh, the person was like, you like Louis C.K.? Do you know what he did? And I was like, yeah, he um, immediately said, yep, I absolutely did those things. Really embarrassed. Um, yeah, I have nothing to say for myself and has slowly... Um, still done comedy and I um love that he has continued to like do comedy and confront the truth of what happened and I wished I wish that more people would not uh just like not show their face anymore because I know a lot of people that can't cancel just won't um engage with the public anymore and they just go away forever um and I don't know I believe in redemption stories for people I believe in nuance I believe that people can 
um, change. And I think that maybe people are fighting against um, the story that they have that if we allow any leeway or any compassion or any forgiveness for people that they will do it again, um, which I understand too. Um, but there's not nearly enough conversation about that. But it's just, it's one area where we have like almost no nuance. And I don't understand why we are so obtuse. It would be the same thing as saying like one race is not smart. It's that level of lacking nuance. Um, yeah, I know. I mean, a good, a good example is you know, like the classic thing where uh, some landlord will tell a horrible story about a tenant who like squatted and trashed the place and didn't pay their rent. And it wasn't because they were in poverty. It's just because they didn't want to and they took advantage of. And so but the the, the idea is not to tell this horrible story. The idea is like to get people to uh, to change the laws more in favor of tenants when that is like just an objectively speaking at a societal level, an asymmetrical power relationship where the, the landlord enjoys all the power and the tenant almost has none, despite this like crowing about, oh, they can squat if they want to and they won't get kicked out. It's like, sorry, like landlords are just in a higher position of power. And so this is the thing that I think human beings struggle with is we're so uh, intoxicated by story that these individual anecdotes, even if they counter uh you know the sort of wider evidence of what we know about a situation that could be enough to sort of tip someone over to the other side and so i think it's really important to like it's less important about whether or not a story is true it's more like what story is useful for creating the kind of world that you kind of you want to live in you know what i mean and and, and that's not to dismiss truth because you don't want to tell total myths but like um based on like the objective evidence for example of how the world works and what we know about crime like there's a certain way we could do justice that would actually be much more healing and better for society in general we choose not to do that because we accept these individual tales of horrific crimes and our feelings of anger and the need to like invoke like invoke justice against the person who did these crimes overrides any sort of other sort of story we might tell about that situation so it's tricky. It's a tricky balance, but you're absolutely right. Like there's just people who refuse to like have any nuance. Um, so again, it's, it's not that stories are bad. It's just that I think as a, as a, as a species, we just need to be much better about being aware of the fact that everything we know about the world is in a sense, a narrative that we've constructed yeah. or someone else has constructed for us. Yeah. And um, this is going back to like human strength and human, um, Many of the wonderful things that make us who we are is we're able to anticipate, we're able to look ahead in the future, um, we're able to tell stories about things that help us create meaning, emotional meaning. Um, and I think what we're saying, uh, to summarize this, is like, in order to help the world, we just need awareness that a story is, is going on. Um, and we can't always overcome ourselves emotionally but that perspective helps us at least take a pause um and at least maybe not hurt people um behind the story that we're telling um and that's all she wrote yeah very good i'm going to stop recording <laughs>